Mahler was born in 1860 in what is now the Czech Republic in a tiny town called Kalisht, population 300. Uh, his father was an innkeeper and a distiller. He made brandy, uh, Bernhardt, Bernhardt Mahler. And his mother, Marie, uh, bore Bernhardt 14 children. Um, only six of these children survived to adulthood. Not so unusual at that time. But uh, Mahler was the, well, actually, Mahler had an older brother, Isidore, who was dead before Mahler was even born. But Mahler witnessed the death of, of seven of these children at varying ages, and it definitely shaped uh, the person that he was. When, when Mahler was uh, three or four, he had his first musical experience, which is um, his grandparents had an accordion and he figured out how to play tunes on this accordion. And uh, when he was five or maybe six, his mother said, for a couple of crowns, um, if you'll write some piano music, I'll, I'll, I'll give you this money. And, and Mahler <laughs> came to her and he said, I've written the pieces. It's called Polka, an Introductory Funeral March. <laughs> Immediately you can tell the kind of person that Mahler was. Obviously, uh, he was a, a great composer, the kind of mind that absorbed music rapidly and learned to play the piano uh, amazingly, actually, by the time he was. By the time he was nine, he was giving piano lessons in this. Actually, they moved, they moved from the tiny town of Kalisht to a town of Iglau, which compared to Kalisht was pretty big. But by the time Mahler was 10 and had given his first public piano recital, um, his father thought he should send him to Prague to a gymnasium, to a, a junior high school, where he could have more exposure uh, to great music and all the things that a big city has to offer. Unfortunately for Mahler, the living conditions in the boarding house where he went in Prague were, were dismal and uh, apparently the woman who ran the place hated him and never fed him. And, uh, <laughs> after six months, he went home to Iglau. So uh, somebody asked him after his experience in Prague when he was 11 years old now, what he wanted to be when he grew up. And he said, I'm going to be a martyr. <laughs> so, the personality of this extraordinary man is already clear at an early age. <laughs> Now, unfortunately, Mahler's parents were not getting along. Uh, financially, they were very strapped, and more children were dying than living. And uh, Mahler's father beat Mahler's mother, and Mahler witnessed this frequently. So, terrible childhood. Um, his dearest friend was his younger brother, Ernst. And Ernst was 13 when he came down with a very serious disease. Mahler, who was 14, stayed by his bedside for months and told him stories and felt that it was his personal responsibility to pull Ernst through this. And of course, he didn't. And Ernst died. And Mahler felt that it was his fault. So uh, finally, Mahler gets away from all of this. Uh, at age 15, he is accepted at the Vienna Conservatory. So he goes to Vienna, and of course, Vienna in the latter part of the 19th century was a great place to be. It was the intellectual center and the artistic center, uh, one of them anyway, uh, of Central Europe. 
So suddenly, Mahler is surrounded by great music and great musicians, and art and literature and philosophy. So he begins to read Schopenhauer, and he begins to read Nietzsche, and his world is opened up. Well, as a student at the conservatory, uh, his friend, Hugo Wolf, born in the same year and went to the Vienna Conservatory in the same year, and he explored musical Vienna. And um, of course, Hugo Wolf turned into a terrific composer himself. But he and Mahler were very different. Uh, Wolf, Wolf was very slow, and Mahler was an agile, healthy young man. Um, so every time Wolf had an idea, like maybe I should take this story and turn it into an opera, Mahler would come around two hours later and he'd already you know, written the whole program. So he and Wolf sort of had a falling out, but they, they went back and forth. <laughs> The next year, they went together, Wolf and Mahler, to hear a premiere of the Third Symphony by Anton Bruckner. Now, Bruckner was 35 years older than the two of them. But Mahler and Wolf were the only two people in the Kunstkohaus that liked this symphony. Uh, the rest of the audience screamed, you know, just booed poor old Bruckner off the stage. And so, um, Mahler and Wolf went backstage and congratulated Bruckner. And Bruckner just became their friend. Uh, he, he didn't try to be a teacher, but they would spend time together. They would go to coffee houses, which is what you do most of the time in Vienna. You know, you go to coffee houses and you discuss art. And so uh, they had this great relationship. And so uh, Mahler and another friend, um, Rudolf Krasnowitzki, decided they would, as a gift to Bruckner, write a forehand piano version of his third symphony. And he was so touched by this because the public had rejected it. And now a couple of teenagers, who were, of course, extraordinary teenagers, had turned it into a, a piano duet. Now, this was particularly important in the 1870s because symphonies, especially gigantic symphonies, didn't get performed very often. The only way that the general public and the large emerging middle class public that owned pianos got to know pieces was because the publishing houses would come out with these marvelous forehand versions so you could play the symphonies at home. And this is the way that not only the, the later 19th century symphonies, but the earlier ones too, came to be better known. You couldn't have Beethoven symphonies every night, but you could play the duet versions every night. And every big publishing house in Vienna had their own versions of these pieces. So Mahler is at conservatory, and he now decides he's going to write um, something more significant. So he delves into German folklore, and he finds the story of two brothers. One murders the other. Uh, the brother who is the murderer gets married. The troubadour at the wedding digs up a bone from under a tree, which just happens to be the bone of the murdered brother. And so when he hollows the bone out and plays it as a flute, it sings to all the wedding guests that the brother has murdered his brother. It's such a great Mahler story, right? <laughs> What else could he have been drawn to? And, and he called the whole thing Das Klagende Lied, uh, the sorrowful song, the complaining song. Uh, 
And so uh, Das Klagendelied was a gigantic, not opera, but let's call it an oratorio in, in three parts. Uh, Mahler revised it considerably. And even today, you can occasionally hear a performance of Das Klagendelied. So this was really Mahler's first important work. He was drawn to the voice, but interestingly, not really drawn to opera. And I thought about this a lot because, uh, for example, Puccini was born just two years before Mahler. Obviously, Puccini had such a sense of the theater. Mahler had a very strong sense of the theatrical and the dramatic, but not really a sense of the theater because, I think, when Mahler expresses an opinion musically, he doesn't wait for somebody else to answer. And I'm not saying that to be negative about Mahler, but, but when he states an idea, he likes to state it in a very long way. And successful drama usually depends on one character having an opinion or a feeling, and then, before too long, another character coming back with a conflicting uh, opinion or feeling, or else maybe uh, joining them. But, but in Mahler, we feel that it's always Mahler explaining Mahler. Um, and again, I'm not trying to be critical, but Mahler, for, as I say, half a century, suffered a kind of neglect because I think people were not prepared for this very different kind of expression. Yes, they had heard the operas of Wagner, which were gigantic and long, but nevertheless, a drama in which many characters voiced many opinions. And so uh, Mahler, who was a great lover of Wagner, never had the feeling of, of something that went back and forth. Um, all right, so Mahler leaves conservatory, and his father encourages him not just to be a musician, but to go to the University of Vienna and study literature and philosophy. And Mahler does this. He skips a lot of his classes, but he's exposed, <laughs> nevertheless, to a wider range of the intellectual, vibrant life of Vienna. And Anton Bruckner is teaching at the university. So although Mahler never takes a class from him, they take a lot of long walks together, and they go to concerts together. And so Mahler is deeply fed by the older composer and has a great admiration for his works. If you were to say who were the three composers that most influenced Wagner, it would be fair to say Bruckner, uh, that most influenced Mahler. It would be Bruckner, Wagner, and Beethoven. Interestingly, uh, you've probably guessed by now that, that um, Mahler was a narcissist and <laughs> felt that, that everything that went through his head uh, was important for everyone else to hear. Now, sometimes in a composer, that's a very valuable characteristic. And looking back, you could say that Beethoven and Wagner shared that characteristic. They felt that uh, their subjective feelings about the world and everything around them uh, were important enough to merit silencing everything else around them. Bruckner, on the other hand, was one of the most self-effacing, humble people. <clears throat> and really uh, to his own detriment. Because although everybody acknowledged that he was the greatest organist alive and they would come from miles away to hear him play at his church in Linz, uh, 
his symphonies never have the element of exhibitionism, which are an important part uh, of what makes a composition live in people's minds. Whereas you can think of so many examples in Beethoven and Wagner and Mahler where the composer stops everything to say, here I am and you're going to listen to it. <laughs> and really that survival instinct is what makes uh, extroverted great composers <laughs> live longer in a way than, than at least poor old Bruckner who, who has fallen into such neglect now even though there are masterpieces, many masterpieces that Bruckner wrote. So Mahler doesn't have this problem. He, he uh, feels that um, he has a subjective worldview which is different from everyone else's and in fact can heal the world and, and needs to be heard. So uh, his first means of expression, as I say, is vocal. And he writes several songs. Suddenly, love crosses his threshold for the first time. Uh, this in the form of a postmaster's daughter named Josefina Poisel. And uh, for Josefina, he writes a song called Mai Tanz im Grünen, which means may dance in, in the green, in the forest. So um, this dance uses a very characteristic peasant dance form, which we know as Lendla, a dance that comes from the land, that belongs to the peasants. Of course, already in the 1870s in Vienna, Mahler would have been hearing waltzes, which were a more upper-class, sophisticated dance, and developed in Vienna to the highest form. But he wanted to return to his Czech roots and use this Lendler dance as uh, an expression in this love song for Josefina. So Mahler, even though he's developed his musical sensibilities and his wonderful compositional abilities, feels like he's still an outsider in Vienna. He's still a peasant, he's still a bohemian, and he's Jewish. And of course, 1875, when Mahler came to Vienna, anti-Semitism was rife. Uh, nothing changed. The huge stock market crash in Austria came in 1873, so Jews were vilified as being responsible for this stock market crash, and Wagner uh, was as, as vehement as anybody in his racist sentiments. So although Mahler was not particularly religious, he was very aware that he was an outsider and he often wrote, I am three times an outsider. So uh, this, this, of course, goes along with his feeling that he was going to grow up to be a martyr. So here Wagner, uh, Wagner influences Mahler, and, and Mahler loves his music, but um, there can never be a connection uh, between these men. However, Mahler realizes that he has another great talent uh, not just his composition and his piano playing, but uh, he needs to make some money. And he goes to the spa town of Bat Hall when he's 20, and he gets a gig conducting operetta. Now, the serious-minded Mahler and fluffy Austrian operetta may seem like strange bedfellows to you, but Mahler distinguished himself within months of being a superb conductor, not just an excellent conductor. However, his standards 
had never been imposed before on singers or orchestras. And I don't mean just at Bach Hall, I mean anywhere. So poor Bach Hall didn't know what hit them. You know, Suddenly, uh, Mahler is demanding 30 rehearsals so that every singer's diction is perfect and every instrumentalist's playing is perfect. And, and I assure you that 130 years ago, uh, the standard of orchestral playing, especially in a German spa town, was not really high. So soon, news of this young taskmaster, Gustav Mahler, spread. And he was offered other engagements to conduct in Laibach and in Olmütz and in other places where he really didn't want to be, but that's all he could get as a 20-year-old, 22-year-old conductor. However, he got his first break, and he was hired to be the music director in Kassel, a much larger opera house where he got to conduct things like Il Trovatore and uh, substantial works. Well, Mahler had a feeling, this won't surprise you, that while many others had attempted these works, he was the first person that had any idea <laughs> how they should be handled. And while, unfortunately, there is no recorded record of Mahler's conducting, um, apparently he was truly one of the greatest conductors who has ever lived. Um, one of his disciples was Otto Klemperer, a terrific conductor himself who said, the greatest conductor of my generation was Arturo Toscanini. But in the generation before, Mahler was 100 times better than him. <laughs> said, you know, it was extraordinary. Mahler was quite small. He was maybe 5'4", and uh, uh, jumped all over the place. And somehow, through force of will and making his emotions known, was able to get uh, gigantic symphony orchestra to go completely along with him. Plus, they were all afraid of him because of him. <laughs> quite, quite a temper. But apparently, also, could be very inspirational. So Mahler is now starting to work at better opera houses and turns out to be quite a crafty administrator. He's able to deal with rivaling factions. He has seemingly inexhaustible energy. And once he's in the position to do so, finds works from France and Italy that have never been done in German-speaking countries before and brings them, such as the hitherto unknown opera by Bizet called Carmen. <laughs> so he does the German-language premiere of Carmen, and he does the German-language premiere of Massenet's Manon. And later on, a few years later, he discovers this unknown Italian opera called Cavalleria Rusticana, and he brings it all to Germany or Austria, or wherever he happens to be. So from Kassel, he moves to Leipzig. And suddenly, good orchestras and good singers are available to him. So uh, Brahms comes to hear him perform, and Tchaikovsky comes to hear him perform. And they think this Mahler is quite extraordinary. Well, about this time, he has um, interest in a young woman named uh, Matilda von Weber. How can he get closer to Matilda von Weber? Well, it turns out Matilda's husband is named Karl von Weber. And Karl is the grandson of the composer Karl Maria von Weber, who wrote some terrific operas, as you know, like the Freischütz, which Mahler loved and conducted, and others as well. But he left an unfinished opera 
called Die Drei Pintos, a comic opera set in Spain. Mahler proposes to Fontevego's grandson that he will flesh out this opera so that it can be performed. He doesn't mention anything about the connection with his wife. <laughs> so Mahler takes other music that Weber wrote. He doesn't use any of his own music. And he turns a wind quintet or a string quartet into an operatic number. And pretty soon, he has figured out how to make the dry pintos into a whole opera. And he decides that he's going to um, perform the whole thing at Leipzig. And Leipzig loves this new opera by Carl Maria von Weber. And Mahler contacts Matilda and says, I'm going to be on the next train out of town, and I want you to meet me on the train, and we're going to go away. You're going to leave your husband and your three children. <laughs> she does not do this. So Mahler goes home. Again, this will hardly surprise you and arranges hundreds of candles around his bed and with no audience stages his own funeral. And, and he lies in his bed pretending to be dead, hoping that sooner or later Matilda will come by to see how he's doing, which she does. So she finds him laid out on this self-styled beer and um, they, they rekindle their relationship briefly. But what really comes out of this is that it inspires him, or at least so he tells us, to write uh, a symphonic movement. And this is Mahler's first great symphonic movement. Now, as it turns out, this movement becomes the first movement of his second symphony. So he puts that aside. But the first movement of the second symphony, called Totenfeier, Rites of the Dead, uh, was inspired by his, his uh, theatrical performance for himself and for his mistress, Matilda von Weber. Uh, so so all, all of this Wagner music, is in, uh, Mahler music, is inspired by events in his life. Mahler realized that because his music was so autobiographical that he was open to criticism. So he hastened to tell the general public that while it was always possible to find programmatic elements in anybody's music, that all his music did was capture the spiritual essence of these different situations, uh, not actually replicated literally. So he really wanted to distance himself from the idea that he was writing program music. And you know what I mean when I say program music, right? Music that actually tells a story like in Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony, there's a part that is the peasants dancing and then there's a storm. Or in um, Berlioz's Symphonie Fantastique when uh, there's a ball and then there's a, a witch's Sabbath. Mahler wanted to avoid a direct storytelling in his music. He felt that that, that was somehow uh, less than, than music that was absolute music. Now, about this time, Mahler discovers um, uh, a soprano at the um, Leipzig Opera House. And her name is Anna von Millenberg. And he and Anna strike up an affair. And Anna is not married. That's a good thing. So Anna von Millenberg is the inspiration for a number of songs. 
And these songs are kind of like Schubert's um, Die Schöne Müllerin, in that they follow a love affair through happiness, unhappiness, and finally separation and tragedy. Uh, Mahler's uh, first song is um, When My Love Gets Married. Then mein Lied Hochzeit Right, I knew I had to play a musical. <laughs> So uh, to us now, that doesn't sound very modern, but this is actually one, two, three, four, one, two. So he makes a, a giant triplet in the second bar. Mahler is already playing with rhythmic ambiguity in the 1880s in a way that other composers had not done. Now I read this, I don't know if it's true, but Mahler's mother was lame and walked with a limp all of her life. And everybody that knew Mahler said, although he was perfectly healthy, that he always walked with a sympathetic limp. And it occurred to me that, uh, you know, a person who walks with both legs equally healthy tends to think in 4-4 time. But a person... <laughs> Indulge me, it's a theory. A person who has a slight limp might naturally think 4-3. Four, 4-3. Three. Four, three. And this does indeed happen frequently in Mahler's music. So I can't prove it, but I'm just laying the case out before you. All right. So the next song in this song cycle called Lieder eines fahrenden Gesellen, which means song of a journeying wayfarer, actually. Usually we call it song, songs of a wayfarer is the, the, the typical translation. Uh, the second song is the happy one. And it begins with Mahler's favorite interval, which is the descending fourth. It's a song about how beautiful nature is. He says, um, this morning I went out over the field and the finch was so happy to see me. He said, hey you, isn't it a beautiful world? <laughs> habitually and shamelessly. And I say shamelessly only because some other composers, notably uh, Rossini, whom you'll hear about at the end of February, uh, used their own music and were harshly criticized as being so terribly lazy. This is Rossini who wrote 37 operas, right? <laughs> so terribly lazy because they actually reused their own material. Whereas Mahler put it in a completely different light and said, really, all of my life is one gigantic work and should be treated as such. And he once said, no one can understand my sixth symphony until they know my first five symphonies intimately. <laughs> you know. So um, 
Uh, again, he, he has no lack of confidence about the value of what he has to offer and uh, never hesitates to use his own music. Uh, the fourth song and final song of this cycle, Lieder eines Fahnen Gesellen, um, is called the, the Two Blue Eyes. And he's singing about the two blue eyes of his beloved. Um, of course, those eyes uh, have penetrated his heart but caused him terrible suffering because she's gone and now all he can do is sit under the linden tree as the blossoms shower down on him and uh, remember that his life is unhappy and tragic. So uh, he finds this wonderful musical motif to depict that. That will come again, too. <laughs> Mahler discovers at this point a collection of German folk tales and poems set uh, by Clemens Brentano and Achim von Arnim. Around, I think there are two sets of them, one in 1805 and one in 1808. And collectively, these two sets, this anthology of German folk poetry, is called Des Knaben Wunderhorn, The Youth's Magic Horn. These touch him, and he sets many of them to music. And they're wonderful songs about all kinds of different things. Uh, some are happy, some are tragic. Mahler grew up, as I say, in this Czech bohemian environment, and there are lots of things he would have heard as a boy that someone growing up in a city might not have heard or in another part of the world might not have heard. Um, Jenna and I once took a trip to, to what well, it was then Czechoslovakia, and we were driving toward Prague, and we were in nowhere, you know, a town of a hundred, and suddenly uh, there's a funeral procession and a brass band of easily 25 people from tubas on up to trumpets and French horns comes marching down the street with the coffin and, you know, playing perfectly in tune and very solemnly. This tradition has not changed over hundreds of years. The, the brass band and the sound of the brass band is an integral part of rural Czech life. So Mahler heard this all the time. He heard Lendla all the time. You know, those, those dances I was telling you about, those three, four uh, bohemian peasant dances. He heard military calls all the time because Iglau was a garrison town. And so he would hear uh, the reveille that got the soldiers up. He would hear the, um, the marches. And all of this music made an impression on his mind. So all of this music comes back in Des Knaben Wunderhorn, the Lendler, the military marches. And um, then, of course, we can't forget his morbid preoccupation with death. So uh, lots of songs about soldiers, but some of them about dead soldiers, dead soldiers who are singing to the live soldiers, and a very Mahler-like theme. By now, you can recognize this. So um, now, now I have now I have a, a treat for you because I'm just talking and talking. But um, later in life, uh, when Mahler was 42, uh, he he actually married. And uh, you probably know this part of his life story. He married Alma Schindler, who became Alma Mahler. And uh, for the remaining eight years of Mahler's life, 
Uh, they were married, but she had to make a tremendous sacrifice. She was 20 years, almost 20 years younger than Mahler, and a very gifted composer herself. But um, Mahler insisted when they married that she give up composition entirely, uh, writing to her um, as if it was self-explanatory that she was to be his wife, not his colleague, and that her only duty henceforth would be to love him. And uh, so Alma Mahler, a child of her generation, accepted these conditions, although, as you'll see when I tell her story more fully, um, she had another half century to explore lots of other things. And, um, so anyway, <laughs> Jenna and I do not have this arrangement. And <laughs> so she has agreed to perform this evening. And we're going to do songs from Das, uh, das Knaben Wunderhorn, uh, illustrating different aspects of what Mahler weaves into his music. Now, she did agree to make the homemade cookies that are out there. So I guess we get the best of both worlds. Thank you. So, Jeanette is going to come up and we're going to do Earthly Life. This poem is a mother and a child. And the child says, Mother, I'm hungry. Give me bread or I will die. And the mother says, Wait, wait. We have to bake it. And the child more desperately says, Mother, mother, give me bread or I'll die immediately. I'm starving. And the mother says, But we, we have to. Yeah. Gather it. Gather oh, I think I'm doing this in the wrong order. We have to harvest <coughs> it, gather it. Then we have to gather it, then we have to make it. So it's a long process before this child is going to get fed. <laughs> no, no, no. And if you understand German, you'll know the end. Oh, you'll know the end. It's smaller. <laughs> and it's smaller, so you probably do. <laughs> Oh, my God. 
by the early age when he wrote these songs, around 32, Mahler had experienced what it was like to be criticized in the press and by his teachers. And uh, as I told you, he was very confident that, uh, that he knew what he was doing and that other people simply weren't ready to understand him. So he was really drawn to this song about a cuckoo and a nightingale who decide to have a singing contest. The nightingale, of course, is a great singer, but is foolish enough to let the cuckoo choose the judge. And the cuckoo <laughs> goes out and picks the donkey to be the judge of the song contest, because he says, after all, with such big ears, he must hear really well. <laughs> so the nightingale sings, and it's beautiful, and then the cuckoo sings, and the donkey says, Nightingale, you did a good job, but you know, it's kind of like American Idol. <laughs> Cuckoo, you really had counterpoint and rhythm, and I felt it down to my hoofs, and it was great. So the donkey declares the win. This song is called In Praise of High Intellect. <laughs>
in these the essence of all the things that Mahler used. The only one that isn't uh, a woman's song is that Mahler and this Knaben Wunderhorn wrote four songs about soldiers. And uh, of course, these are men's songs. And I told you there was one about a, uh, a drummer who at the beginning of the song is alive and is singing, we leave the barracks at three or four in the morning and we march. And uh, soon on in the song, he's killed. And he's lying dead on the ground looking up at his comrades and saying, uh, why are you walking by me as though it were already over for me? And, and of course, uh, the irony is that he's still at the end singing, tra-la-li, tra-la-la, you know. So, so Mahler is no stranger to irony. I, I'm going to just sing you a little of this song, but uh, just to give you, because this kind of music also comes a lot in the symphonies. <laughs> he turns to write his first symphony. So uh, he calls it the Titan, because <laughs> you know, what else? <laughs> so the thing about the Titan is that nobody, nobody in 1888 had written a symphony so gigantic, so long, so many instruments required, eight horns sitting in the section, uh, as Gustav Mahler. So uh, immediately, as a symphonist, he finds his feet using the largest orchestral palette that has ever been used. And um, this symphony begins with uh, the falling forth that Mahler was so fond of. As I say, Mahler's very confident, taking his time. So three minutes later, <laughs> this falling forth leads to another falling forth. Well, that wasn't a fourth, because he got distracted, and he remembers military bugle calls. Oh, yes, I was doing falling forths. <laughs> So Mahler does something very different from all symphonic predecessors. He starts off on one track, and then when something else occurs to him, he jumps to the other subject with no uh, logical, musical connection. Now, that's not because he isn't a good composer. It's because he lives at a time when suddenly 
form is breaking down. And Mahler's head is, of course, full of all these different things. But he doesn't try to synthesize them into a classical form. He, in fact, tramples on tradition. His famous quotation, Tradition is schlamperei. Uh, tra tradition is slovenliness. <laughs> so uh, tradition, in and of itself, for Mahler, is not important. Uh, expressing all the different ideas that occurred to him uh, is important. And he said, famously, the symphony, he, he was friends with Sibelius. And he actually said this to Sibelius. He said, the symphony is the world. And so uh, the best symphony is the one which includes everything that is in the world. And as you see, Mahler's symphonic output over the next uh, 20 years, you'll see that he really held to that motto and tried to weave everything into these symphonies. All right, so now we've got this falling forth. And guess what that makes him think of? That song he wrote in Lieder eines fahrenden Gesellen, Now this three minute song becomes a 20 minute symphony movement. And because Mahler, through all of his wonderful conducting and his orchestral experience, has truly become a master of the orchestra, he uses all the fantastic coloristic resources of a vast late 19th century symphony orchestra. So uh, he really squeezes all that can be taken from this Ging Heit Heut Morgen übers Feld song and you know, it multiplies it in length seven times and that is the first movement of his Titan symphony. Okay? Now, uh, needless to say, not only does he use orchestral colors, but he visits strange harmonic regions and he becomes mystical when all movement stops and there's just a tiny hovering vibrato in the highest strings and strange sounds begin to happen. And uh, uh, as I told you, Mahler studied philosophy, so he felt that he was not only writing music, but paving the way for new philosophical thought. All right. In the second movement of the Titan Symphony, he explores the Lendler, not just the way he did in that simple song, My Tanz im Grünen, but uh, symphonically. I'm just playing a piano. So you don't really get all of the different things that are happening. But one of the things Mahler loves is to use wind instruments in the most irritating possible way. And he does this on purpose. So every time you hear something like you know that suddenly 12 or 16 wind instruments are all blowing on a dissonant chord, sometimes even with arpeggiators you know, and trills thrown in just to make it sound really grating. Um, and I don't know what he loved about this so much, but it is a characteristic in every orchestral piece of Mahler you will ever hear. Okay? Um, the nickname in the orchestra for the E-flat clarinet is the weasel, because um, an E-flat clarinet, which sounds a fourth higher than the normal clarinet, sounds like a weasel being strangled to death. <laughs> 
composers, you know, Mahler loved it, and then Richard Strauss decided to use it a lot. Uh, but but Mahler was really the, the pioneer weasel user. And um, so these symphonies have this uh, grating wind instrument quality that that sounds, I think, like a like a plaintive voice, and that's why he, he loved it so much. Now, um, the third movement of this symphony, actually, we can all do this together. You all know Frere Jacques, right? No. Now, actually, in, in, in German, it's Bruder Martin, but we'll, we'll keep it in French, or you can sing La La La. So let's just have, this is group one, this is group two, this is group three, this is group four. We're going to just do Frere Jacques once, all right? Here you go. solo, unheard of in symphonic repertoires. except in the minor key, until Mahler gets distracted and he says, wait a minute, we're missing the Klezmer Orchestra. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. That's exactly what happens. Okay? This is so typical of everything that goes on for Mahler. And then we come back to Frere Jaca, and then we remember the, the two blue eyes at the end of Lido Anastrand and Gazellen, and the orchestra's playing. Right? Why waste a good tune once? <laughs> so it comes back, and then a huge cymbal crash, and then this chord, which had never, I'm sure, ever been used before. C, G, C flat, D pounds off into F minor, where the symphony has never been before. So lots of things are happening that have never happened before. The finale of a symphony in a key totally unrelated to the key of the symphony, chords that have never been used, rhythms that have never been used, instrumental colors that have never been used, and this gigantic finale, which like so many of Mahler's finales, is a kind of apocalypse where things go uh, to the extremes of chaos and then come back to something like, like uh, tonality. 
So this symphony ends in heroic D major. And we're going to end this half of the program now. But I just want to say uh, there are some more symphonies. So after you have wonderful <laughs> things, come back. This is a celebratory party is because it's smaller we're celebrating his death instead of <laughs> but he was he died he died a hundred years ago in 1911 so this is a very appropriate time appropriate time to be doing this so Mahler you know he was composing this great symphony but uh, meanwhile his ambitions as an opera conductor and of course the need to earn a living uh, continued so he moved from Kassel to Leipzig to Hamburg, to Budapest, to Prague, and he was a big success, as I say, bringing in works from Italy and France that hadn't been heard in these places. Uh, but the real jewel in the opera conductor's crown was the Vienna Hofoper, the Vienna Imperial Opera. And Wagner knew that he could get that. Well, there was really one thing standing in his way. The head of the Hofoper was actually an imperial position. And to have an imperial position in Vienna, you had to be Catholic. So he converted. <laughs> and he went back to some songs and stuck in little references to the Christ child and started writing pieces using Catholic mystical texts. And what the heck? He got the job. <laughs> so now, Mahler is the head of the most important opera house in the world, conducting anywhere from 60 to 100 performances a year. So he's not a full-time composer. What he does is rent a little tiny cottage, and when I say tiny, I mean like six feet by eight feet, uh, by some lovely Austrian lake. Actually, there were a series of these little tiny composing cottages. And in the summer, when there's no opera, he takes six or eight weeks and writes the second symphony, the third symphony, the fourth symphony. So he's really a weekend composer. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what a weekend composer. So during his time with the opera, he is conducting all the Wagner operas, uh, all the Mozart operas that were done at the time, meaning, you know, uh, Magic Flute, Figaro, and Don Giovanni over and over. Uh, but, but he was a great conductor, apparently, of, of Tristan and of Lohengrin and all the ring. So, uh, you know, he was much more famous in his lifetime as a conductor than as a composer. And as I say, he wasn't just a great conductor, he was a great administrator and a great politician and diplomat. When he was conducting in Budapest, there was a nationalist movement and they wanted only Hungarian operas, Hungarian folk operas, you know. Uh, and so he said, great, how about the ring cycle in Hungarian. <laughs> he did it. He did it. They still use that translation in Budapest. And uh, so, so then the next person that came in was was so conservative and so uh, Hungarian-minded that he had to leave. Uh, actually, Mahler had to leave most of his positions. <laughs> he, he never really left on his own free will. But there was always another better position to move to. And while he was imperial conductor of the Vienna Imperial Opera, he also became for some time the conductor of the Vienna Philharmonic, one of the greatest orchestras in the world. So he was busy. 
And, and as I say, he was healthy uh, up <coughs> to a certain moment. And then suddenly it became clear that he had some kind of infection uh, in his blood. It was a streptococcal infection in his blood. So Mahler, who used to run up and down mountainsides and uh, use this, in fact, as a technique to get many of his melodic inspirations, suddenly had to slow down a little bit. So he thought, I think I'll get married. And um, the person that he chose, it was, it was a bad choice if he wanted to slow down, because he married one of the most vibrant, creative, uh, dynamic people in all Vienna. And this was Alma Schindler, who was, as I mentioned, almost 20 years younger than he was for a start, but also um, you know, one of Zemlinsky's composition students and knew all the great writers and painters. Vienna, around 1900, was a really happening place. Uh, think of just the painters like Gustav Klimt and Egon Schiele and um, Kokoschka and uh, you know, the, the architect Otto Bauer. Uh, you, you know, um, I don't know if you've seen pictures of Vienna, this uh, gigantic golden globe that looks like it has ivy growing out all over it. That is on a building called the Secession. And the secession was a group of artists who all announced as a manifesto that they were going to secede from the traditional uh, Viennese art establishment and create their own unique way of expressing themselves as artists. So that included musicians, painters, architects, writers, uh, you know, Schnitzler was part of this movement. So all of these people knew each other and, of course, had coffee together all the time. And, and so uh, this was a constant laboratory of uh, creating new ideas. And so uh, Mahler was, was right in the, the thick of this. And Alma, Alma Schindler, now Alma Mahler, was in the thick of it too. But she did uh, give up her composing. Um, she, however, never gave up her numerous liaisons with all these wonderful other uh, artistic people, and she viewed herself as a muse in every sense for all of these guys. So um, she saw no problem with this. Mahler did, of course, but he couldn't keep up with her, so he really had no control over the situation. And uh, while Alma Mahler was having affairs uh, all the time, uh, she nevertheless stayed married to Mahler, and they had two children. Um, uh, Maria and Anna. Maria is the older child. Uh, both so dear to both parents. And then Mahler uh, finds a set of poems by Rückert, uh, 428 poems on the death of children. And, and <laughs> you know, they're great songs, but what can I say? So he writes five songs on the death of children. And then his older daughter dies of scarlet fever. And his wife never forgave him because she felt that he somehow was able to create that. And, and it's not even surprising she felt that because Mahler was always saying that, that you know, he was creating the universe and that he had a, a hotline to God. And uh, um, so Mahler shouldn't have written those songs. But uh, nevertheless, um, he went on composing uh, in every spare minute, conducting furiously, and not just in Vienna, but guest appearances all over, um, you know, administering as well as, as conducting, and keeping the highest standards of the orchestra, and the 
chorus, everything. So now, of course, he's still writing symphonies. He'd written this gigantic four-movement symphony. And remember that when he had staged his own death with all the candles, that that uh, gigantic totenfire had come to him, the uh, death rites. So he resurrected that, that movement and, in fact, created a whole five-movement symphony called the Resurrection. So the Resurrection Symphony leaves the first symphony in the dust in terms of forces required and length. A nice 85-minute symphony that calls for 10 trumpets and 10 horns and, you know, 70 or 80 string players. And, and oh, I forgot to mention, now we're adding soloists and a gigantic chorus. So there's 200 people on stage, and it is truly a magnificent piece. Uh, there's no question that any performance of Mahler's second symphony uh, leaves everybody in the audience truly inspired and uplifted. It is a great work of music and a great work of art. Uh, it begins um, with this... Uh, <laughs> Wagner had thought of it first, but Mahler really made it his own. And um, this, this will come over and over throughout the symphonies. All right, so uh, obviously I can't give you a huge overview of all of Mahler's symphonies. But um, the, the second symphony also has one of these uh, crazy, diabolical, grotesque scherzos and then um, it takes another one of the Knaben Wunderhorn songs. One of the Knaben Wunderhorn poems is about a preacher who isn't having much luck with human congregations, so he goes to preach to the fish. And all the fish, the carp and the eels, come to listen to him. And then at the end, uh, the fish have remained unchanged by all the wonderful information they've received. So they say, we really like that preacher. He's a good one. And the music went like So again, Mahler takes this three-minute song and turns it into a 12-minute symphonic movement uh, using the weasel, of course, and, and all the other uh, orchestral colors that he can devise. And so there's this fantastic um, variation on the fish preacher song. And uh, then he goes to um, a song, actually, in the symphony. He takes another Knaben Wunderhorn poem. This was such an influential work. And it's, um, humans lie in great need and pain. Um, I want to become an angel. So uh, this movement is uh, just a solo, a contralto, an alto solo. <coughs> and very heavy on the brass instruments. The same kind of chorale that we heard in the streets uh, near Prague uh, that, that Bruckner actually developed, Mahler uses as the accompaniment for this song about moving from death to life. And then 
In the final movement, the fifth movement, oh, we've moved into five movement symphonies now, too. Nobody had been, well, Pastoral Symphony has five movements, but that's sort of compressed. This is five big movements. And the fifth movement says, uh, the judgment day comes, the graves open and all the dead come forth, and there is no right and wrong, and there is no judgment, and everyone is uplifted. Auf erstehen, be resurrected. So this is this fantastic uh, triumphant ending that Mahler devises for his second symphony. Now what can you do when you've written an 85-minute symphony with five movements? Well, you write a third symphony that lasts about 100 minutes and has six movements. <laughs> and that is exactly what Mahler did, okay? So the third symphony begins, oh, and of course, with a large chorus and solace, and a boys' chorus thrown in. Um, this symphony begins with all eight French horns playing a melody together. French horns. There is nothing that you can say about the visceral power of these Mahler symphonies with such huge forces. But the reason it's worthwhile to do this little overview is that you don't have a chance to hear Mahler symphonies live that often, um, but there are certainly lots of wonderful recordings, and with computers, those are all, you don't even have to get the recording, it's all right there. So if you're listening to a Mahler symphony, you'll have certain characteristics now uh, that you'll know to look for. Um, the grotesque trilling in the, in the woodwind instruments and the chorales that sound like Bruckner and the um, almost hysterical prominence of a single instrument vaulting over all the rest um, rather than a smooth texture. Mahler purposely avoids smooth texture in many parts of his symphonies. Uh, and then when, at the end, there's a resolution when he depicts the universe as a calm, beautiful place, the contrast is even stronger. So there are certain things you're going to hear over and over in Mahler's symphonies. The Lendler, uh, those, those peasant dances turned into symphonic movements. And of course, quotations from his songs, and even quotations from other movements of his own symphonies. All right, so we're, we're uh, thinking about this third symphony. And um, really, Mahler envisions this symphony as a joyful symphony, ultimately. Ultimately, a triumphant symphony. And a symphony that uh, pays homage to nature. Um, he called it. Um, each movement had a, a name like what the, what the birds tell me, what the forests tell me, and the final movement is what love tells me. And he had actually written a seventh movement, uh, which was another song uh, called Wir genießen die himmlischen Freude, which means we enjoy the pleasures of heaven. But he took that song out, because I guess he thought 100 minutes was enough for one symphony. Um, when you hear this symphony, of course, uh, it's going to be broken up, because the audience isn't expected to sit for 100 minutes without getting up. So um, 
the, the conductor has to decide you know, how to break this work up, when is the intermission going to happen. So perhaps for this reason, Mahler decided for his fourth symphony, instead of writing something that was two hours and 10 movements, that he would actually write a shorter work. And Mahler's fourth symphony is, for him, his most quiet, concise, uh, gentle piece. It's only 50 minutes long. He goes back to only uh, four movements. And the fourth movement is what had formerly been the seventh movement of the third symphony, this song. <laughs> Uh, an angelic soprano sings about how uh, heaven is just like uh, earth, except with all of the suffering and pain removed. Um, St. Martha is baking the bread, and uh, everything is happening just like <coughs> earth, but this time we can enjoy it. So um, that, you can imagine, for Mahler was a very uh, important poem. And um, the Fourth Symphony is perhaps one of Mahler's most frequently played pieces, not least of all because it's the only symphony uh, among the nine fully composed symphonies that can be uh, done by a normal size orchestra. You, know, you don't have to hire 45 extra players in order to put it on. So uh, the fourth symphony um, is calm and beautiful and makes way for Mahler's fifth symphony. Now this fifth symphony um, is characteristic in every way of what we've come to expect of Mahler. It begins with um, a military call. Remember, he grew up near that garrison, had it in his head. But then moves into a funeral march. <laughs> so, this funeral march quickly becomes more impassioned, and the first movement of the Fifth Symphony is really a gigantic, tragic uh, statement. However, later on in this symphony, in the fourth movement, Mahler does something which, as his life moves on, he does more and more, and that is create a movement of ethereal calm and beauty. This is just harp and strings. actually is triumphant and an exercise in very complex counterpoint. Counterpoint in music is using many melodic themes simultaneously in such a way that they fit with each other harmonically. Uh, obviously Bach used counterpoint all the time, but for late 19th century composers, uh, counterpoint was something which features only more rarely uh, in their music, certainly um, in, the, in the extreme way that it does in this finale of the Fifth Symphony. 
another example that comes to mind is the overture to Wagner's opera Die Meistersinger, which is um, counterpoint on parade, I think one critic called it somewhat <laughs> unkindly. Uh, it's, it's fantastic because all of the different themes can come together at once. And so if Mahler, as he said, was trying to show the universe or show the world, uh, it's, it's a great effect to have all the different moods and tunes happening at once, just the way they do if, if we could hear all of us as a melody at the same time and we fit together. Now, the sixth symphony, which Mahler himself called his tragic symphony, is tragic uh, in the sense that Mahler felt um, all of life is movement from one place to another. And the tragedy is when fate obliges us to stay in the same place. We're unable to move. So uh, the sixth symphony never moves from the key of A minor in three of its four movements. And, and this, for Mahler, symbolized the tragedy of a person who is unable to move. So we hear the first. And in the um, second subject of the movement, we hear something uh, much more beautiful. And Alma Mahler, in her biography of her husband, said, that was me. <laughs> she said that always, even in the middle of the most desperate thoughts, uh, my husband would return to, to a joy that was inspired by me. So that, that's Alma, by her own admission. Uh, and then in the second movement, Mahler is back into uh, A minor. But it's one of those one, two, three grotesque uh, scherzo things. But suddenly in the middle of it, we hear something like this on one of those shrill wind instruments. And they'll come later in other instruments. Uh, this is a theme that he'll use transformed later on in the movement, but something um, sinister that cannot be shaken away. All right. The third movement of this is a beautiful adagio. And actually, when Mahler first wrote the symphony, the movements were switched around. And even now, people will exchange the positions of the second and third movements of the symphony. You probably heard this. Klezmer music that Mahler heard um, even in the <laughs> flat 
that second degree of the scale uh, gives a feeling of so. simple melody, Mahler twists that note so that it has a different emotional feeling from something that was played in a diatonic major key. And then the uh, finale of the symphony comes back to A minor, and in case we didn't know that fate had intervened, there are three gigantic hammer blows uh, that, you know, when, when Beethoven wrote um, the Fifth Symphony, he said famously, this is fate knocking at the door. But he just used the regular symphonic orchestra, and that whole movement only takes seven minutes. So Mahler, <laughs> Mahler expands on this principle, and uh, the movement takes over 20 minutes, and fate knocks at the door with a gigantic 12-pound hammer that the percussionist has to lift way up. <laughs> it's a whole different, different way. Um, the seventh symphony is um, <coughs> probably the most obscure of all the Mahler symphonies and perhaps the least frequently performed. Um, a wonderful piece, it opens with an unusual interval. All right, this is another theory. You can take it away. But Mahler's sixth symphony starts with this sixth, right? The interval of a sixth. And keeps coming back to the interval of a sixth as the prominent intervals. Well, the seventh symphony, coincidentally or not, has this very prominent interval of a seventh that becomes the motif for the entire gigantic first movement. And then he goes. So I don't know if that was unconscious. I'm sure it was unconscious. But in any case, the sixth symphony is dominated by sixths, and the seventh symphony is dominated by sevenths. The, the seventh symphony has five movements. The second and fourth are both night music, different kinds of night music. But this is sometimes called the night symphony. And, and the um, fifth movement is one of these uh, very bizarre apocalyptic movements that Mahler was so fond of. Um, none of these pieces were gaining great appeal, and Mahler's um, tenure at the Hofoper was wearing thin, because although he was doing extraordinary things, he no longer had the physical strength because of this infection in his blood uh, to do what he had done before. He couldn't work 18 hours a day and rehearse the chorus and rehearse the orchestra and compose and have his life at home. So he took a job that was offered to him at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. And in 1907, he and Alma moved to New York. But um, it, it didn't turn out to be such a wonderful partnership after a little while, because um, although he brought lots of works to New York that the Metropolitan Opera hadn't heard, uh, they found his own music um, somewhat strange, and uh, somehow the board of directors of the Metropolitan 
um, felt that one contract was, was enough for Gustav Mahler. So uh, he took a job with the New York Philharmonic. They were right there. And um, that, that also was sort of a mixed success. But by 1910, uh, this disease had progressed to the point where it was clear that he had lesions in his heart. And uh, he was not quite 50. And so he, he said, I, I want to go back to Vienna. And the last works that he wrote, um, one of them uh, was a very extroverted, outgoing piece, his eighth symphony. And finally, uh, Mahler enjoyed in 1910 the thrill of seeing one of his own works be a success with the public. This eighth symphony has more vocal uh, writing in it than any of the other symphonies. He, um, he uses a chorus and eight soloists, uh, actually two choruses, two choruses and eight soloists um, from beginning to end. The first half, this gigantic first movement, is uh, Veni Creator Spiritus, um, Come Creative Spirit, and it's a, a, a Catholic mystical poem from uh, the 10th century. And then the second half of the gigantic Eighth Symphony is from Goethe's Faust, part two. So um, he juxtaposes these two halves, the first in Latin, second in German. And lo and behold, at the end of this, the most people, even Mahler, has ever put on a stage, the, the symphony was even nicknamed the Symphony of a Thousand, uh, the whole audience just went crazy. And everybody loved this piece. I mean, Mahler must have been so happy because uh, every other piece he wrote, he had to make excuses and say it's only in uh, another 50 years that people will be ready to understand this music. And seemingly, he had written something that, that everybody understood and loved, and the ovation went on for half an hour. So he must have just been so happy. Uh, the last three works of his life are all mystical and reflective. Um, the ninth symphony uh, is a gorgeous thing, but Mahler didn't really want to write a ninth symphony because he knew once Beethoven had written a ninth symphony, it was curtains for Beethoven and Bruckner hadn't been able to get past number nine, so he was very superstitious about writing a ninth symphony. Before he wrote the ninth symphony, he wrote something called Das Lied von der Erde, the Song of the Earth, which is six songs taken from Chinese poetry and the symphonic interludes are as long as the songs themselves, so that it's really sometimes called a song symphony. But it was Mahler's way of trying to escape fate and not write a ninth symphony. Well, you can't escape fate, and especially not if you're Gustav Mahler. So he did write that ninth symphony, and uh, in it, quotations from his own Kindertotenlieder, the songs on the death of children, because he knew that it was his time. So the symphony begins already as a calm and resigned farewell to all the beauties of life. And uh, if you ever have a chance to hear a wonderful performance of the Ninth Symphony, uh, I, I recommend you take advantage of it because you won't have the chance very often. But it is truly one of the most beautiful things that a human being has ever written. He did start a Tenth Symphony, but uh, was only able to sketch it and pretty much filled out two of its five movements. Um, in 1960, for the 100th anniversary of Mahler's birth, a British composer and musicologist named Derek Cook 
took all the sketches and created what he called a performing version of Mahler's 10th Symphony. And it was uh, broadcast on BBC, and Alma Mahler, who heard it, uh, got in contact with Derek Cook. She was still alive in 1960, and said, um, I didn't realize there was so much Mahler in this. Because all she knew was that her husband had left some sketches and uh, you know, that she was alive 50 years after his death to hear the first realized version of this 10th symphony uh, and, and still totally with it. Oh, by the way, at the end of his life, Mahler said, I'm sorry I told you to stop composing. You're really very good. You should go back <laughs> and do it. But she didn't. But she did have an affair with Kokoschka, and then a marriage, not very long, with uh, Walter Gropius, the architect, uh, the Bauhaus fellow. Uh, and then um, after, after he was gone, she took up with Franz Werfel, and they were married for quite a long time. So really, she was intimately associated with some of the greatest figures of late 19th century and early uh, 20th century Vienna. And she didn't die until 1964. Um, I remember that um, there was a singer, well, there still is, uh, a man named Tom Lair, who, who wrote, okay, have you all heard his, his, <laughs> oh, two, uh, you, uh, Alma tell us, all modern women are jealous, you didn't even use pawns, yet you got Gustav and Walter and Franz. <laughs> so, she was immortalized in song, even, you know, by more than one composer. So Gustav Mahler left this legacy, which was very confusing to the world. And between 1911, when he died at the age of 50, uh, he didn't reach his 51st birthday, and 1960, when the 100th anniversary of his birth came around, he was quite neglected. There were a few who performed his works. Um, when his first symphony was premiered, there was a young conductor age 18 in the audience, named Bruno Schlesinger, who loved this piece and became a great champion of Mahler's works and changed his name to Bruno Walter. So he recorded all of the Mahler symphonies and all of the Mahler songs, and that is our direct link to Mahler. A little later, when Mahler was conducting his second symphony, you know, there was offstage brass, and he had to hire some little whippersnapper to do that. And he ran backstage because this little guy had done such a fantastic job, and it was Otto Klemperer. <laughs> so Klemperer also became a huge champion of Mahler's works, as did the British conductor John Barbaroli and the Dutch conductor Willem Mengelberg. So there were a few conductors, but really only in the last 50 years have we suddenly uh, been exposed to Mahler. And I think psychologically, Mahler is modern and was ahead of his time. Britain and Shostakovich both said, we owe a tremendous debt uh, to Mahler above all other composers. So there was an incident that was really interesting. In 1910, uh, Mahler's marriage was uh, not falling apart because they stayed together, but you know the death of Maria, uh, the older daughter, and the fact that uh, Mahler knew that while he was writing the Eighth Symphony, you know, Alma was off cavorting with Walter Gropius already. It was a rough time. And um, somebody said, I know somebody that you can talk to. So Mahler wound up having a four-hour walk 
in Leiden, Holland with Sigmund Freud. <laughs> no kidding. And, and they talked about many things, of course, death and love and marriage, and Freud said, we are very similar. And Freud really hit the nail on the head. He said, we are both <coughs> narcissists with obsessive tendencies and layers of hysteria. I mean, <laughs> right there. But he penetrated something in Mahler, and he said, why do you feel you're not as great as Beethoven or Bach? And Mahler said, because I have never been able to pursue a musical idea without some other completely unrelated and often trivial musical idea intruding on that musical idea. And as they talked, Mahler said, aha, <laughs> just what you want to happen when you're with the father of psychoanalysis. He says, aha, when I was young, I, I had suppressed this memory until now, but I was witnessing my father beating my mother, and I had to get out of the house. The scene was so horrific. And I walked out into the street, and there was an organ grinder playing a hurdy-gurdy. In fact, he was playing, Ach, mein lieber Augustin, Augustin, Augustin. And he said, from that moment on, I have never been able to separate the truly tragic from the trivial, because they coexist. So Freud, in a sense, gave him this key that uh, a childhood experience indeed had affected his composition. However, do we know in 2011 if Mahler had never had that experience and had not composed in this extremely quirky way when one idea on one plane seemed to lead to something completely unrelated, if he would have had the musical influence that he has today, a question which we can't really answer. But in a way, uh, the pathology led to the greatness and led to uh, the music which now uh, is played all over the world quite regularly. So I thought it was fascinating that uh, Mahler and Freud had the, the chance to meet. And um, I don't think that Freud cared much for music. He, he said as much. He'd gone to the opera a few times, but he didn't remember if Mahler was conducting or not. That must have been hard for Mahler to hear. But, um, in any case, they, they did connect. And uh, Freud, Freud was four years older than Mahler. But um, the, two of them, the two of them at the very end of Mahler's life formed this bond. So um, there are a hundred things we could talk about, but uh, this is becoming like a Mahler symphony. So yes, let's <laughs> But the one story you have to tell is Gropius asking Mahler for Alma's hand in marriage because he thought that Mahler was her father. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Gropius, Gropius thought that Mahler was uh, Alma's father because he was almost 20 years older and uh, asked for her hand in marriage. That didn't go over really well. <laughs> <laughs> My other, uh, oh, go ahead, please. Uh, what do you think of uh, the Kaplan recording of the Resurrection? It's great. So uh, Gilbert Kaplan um, is not um, a conductor. He's a, um, he's a businessman, and uh, a successful businessman, successful enough to rent the London Symphony. Um, and so he did. And uh, he, he recorded the second symphony, and you know what? Maybe, maybe Barbaroli did some things better, and maybe uh, Bruno Walter understood it more deeply. But I think the man really knew the piece and, and brought a lot out of it. Interestingly, I think, with a composer like Mahler, um, a personal interpretation can be more um, 
valuable than in a Mozart symphony. You know, we've heard people take Mozart symphonies and try to impress their personal stamp on them, usually with unsuccessful results. But uh, in the case of Mahler, um, who valued subjectivity so highly, I think the case for Gilbert Kaplan or um, you know, a very uh, skilled amateur like Gilbert Kaplan conducting a Mahler symphony uh, has a lot of validity. So, you know, there are a lot of recordings of all these symphonies you can listen to. Yes? We had heard a lecture uh, about the ninth that it was a record of Mahler's soon-to-be heart attack and that uh, uh, he begins with his death and ends with his uh, funeral march. Is that true? Ends with his, yes, ends with his um, farewell, really. But yes, his funeral march. And uh, this is theory number three for the night, okay? All, all discountable. But as Mahler gets older and his heart begins to become less reliable, he thinks more and more that the pentatonic scale feels to him somehow uh, like, like his own um, irregular heartbeat and this uh, harp in the Ninth Symphony. We're in image. palpitation. So I think that's very accurate. Uh, Mahler was nothing if not autobiographical. Uh, and, and even though he tried to say, nothing in my music is programmatic, uh, there's no question that he felt his music, um, you know, spoke for him. But as Alma Mahler said while he was writing on uh, the Ninth Symphony, Gustav is on the telephone with God all the time now. <laughs> she was sort of irritated. Uh, yes. that you just passionate about? I think the Sixth Symphony as a whole is my personal favorite, <laughs> but it's all pretty fabulous. <laughs> and you know, it's funny because he, he took one thing from another. If, if you could play all the Mahler symphonies end to end and throw in the songs, it would take, you know, 20 hours max, maybe 18 hours. So it's not a gigantic output. Um, and, and it would be, you know, but it's hardly longer than the whole ring. To listen to everything, uh, to listen to everything that Mahler wrote, and in some ways, um, you can go from one piece to another. Uh, it's so unlike Beethoven, where a single symphony or a single sonata is about one thing, and explores it thoroughly, and then it's finished. Mahler is never really finished, and his farewell pieces, like Ich bin der Welt abhanden gekommen, uh, they they really suggest that they would go on forever if we both had the time. You know? Yes? I wonder if you had a chance to hear the Lied von der Erde with Susan Graham. Yes. I thought it was In the Schoenberg. So Arnold Schoenberg loved Mahler and his music. They had a tremendous respect for each other. And Schoenberg had started a society where people would meet in living rooms because he felt that the standard of large orchestral playing wasn't very high. And with chamber groups, he could demand many more rehearsals and perform things accurately, and of course, more frequently. So uh, many of Mahler's works, uh, along with other composers, underwent this treatment. And so there's this fantastic chamber version uh, of, of Das Lied von der Erde, and uh, from music really, he did it here really recently. Brilliant. It's brilliant, uh, yeah. <coughs> so these all exist. And uh, for example, Zemlinsky uh, wrote 
four-hand versions of Mahler symphonies for home consumption, just the way Mahler and his friend had written a, a home version of uh, Bruckner's Third Symphony. So there, there were uh, excellent reductions of these gigantic works uh, made by the, the first-rate musicians of the time. And I think that's a good place to go. <laughs>